So, Lord, thank you for your presence, your power, your grace, your mercy. We ask for your anointing to be upon each one of us. Thank you for the way you're transforming and changing our lives in Jesus' name. And anyone that can agree with that, just say with me, amen. amen. You may be seated. So, let's just look at a few scriptures. Acts 10.38, a very familiar verse. It says, how God, how God anointed... Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Notice it doesn't say he went around condemning all who were oppressed by the devil. He didn't go around policing (laughs) all who were oppressed of the devil. What did he do with people who were oppressed of the devil? He healed them. Now, these weren't necessarily nice folk. I mean, I suppose there are some nice folk that are oppressed of the devil, but... (laughs) You ever met a demon in a person? Liar, you've done it in yourself several times. (laughs) Last time somebody cut you off or something, right? (laughs) So Jesus, or Christ in us is a healing presence. Jesus was a healing presence everywhere he went, right? So I want to talk to you this morning about just some ways that we can continue to become a healing presence for people and kind of continue talking about that. With that in mind, I want you to listen to another scripture from Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, again, talking about Jesus. uh, Verse 15, it says, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. So again, he's a healing presence, right? Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel. Look at this. Everybody listen to this. Underline this, because this is important to being a healing presence. I'm preaching to myself. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed, (laughs) no pun intended. (laughs) What is it with all these reeds today? God is speaking. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will trust. So get the picture there. He healed them all. And then he's not quarreling. He will not quarrel. He will not cry out, raise his voice. Could mean the same thing. He will not quarrel. He will not raise his voice. Uh, Smoking flax, he won't put out. So something that's barely got a little bit of light in it, he's not going to be aggressive with it and put out what light's there. Got it? And until he brings forth justice. And justice in this sense is justice for the oppressed. It's restorative justice, which we talked about a few weeks ago, not retributive justice. You have to get the message. Don't have time to cover it. Now, it also says that he delights in him. And so then if you come with me to Psalm 19, and then we'll get into the meat of the message. Psalm 19. Uh, The psalmist says in verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength. And my Redeemer, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. So here's here's the thing. How many of you want to would like to increase your ability to become a healing presence in the world to people around you, your family, people that you touch? How many of you would like some practical ways to be able to do that? (laughs) Okay, so here's my presupposition. Your thoughts and your feelings, primarily, those two things are energies. Can we agree? They're energies. You can feel. You can walk into a room and feel when somebody's been fighting with somebody. You, you, can, you, can, you can sense the atmosphere that's being created by whatever energy the thoughts and feelings of the people in the atmosphere are generating. I've walked into churches. I've preached at all kinds of different groups and churches, big crowds, small crowds. And, and you can walk in. You can feel the atmosphere in a place. You can feel the energy of it, Right. So what creates that energy is our thoughts and our feelings. So whatever you're thinking about, whatever you're feeling, makes up your presence, which some people, now I know some people get triggered in Christian community if I use this term, but the term actually originated from a Christian mystic. 
And that is the term aura. You have an aura about you. You have an energy about you. You have a presence about you that is the composite of your thoughts and feelings. So if we're going to be a healing presence, or let me ask you this question, what kind of presence do you bring with you? Are you intentional about the presence that you bring with you? Do you do you go somewhere with an intention to have a presence to change an atmosphere when you walk in? If you don't, I'm not saying you have to or you should, but I'm inviting you to recognize that you absolutely can. You can become the kind of person who carries a presence that changes things just because you show up. Not because you quarrel, not because you raise your voice or any of that stuff, just because you showed up, just because you have the right kind of thoughts and feelings and meditations in your heart, you can begin to carry more of the anointing, more of the presence of God, more of His healing presence and power with you as you go. But that requires, so practical ways to become a healing presence requires that we examine our models of the world and our thoughts and our feelings and then say, what what thoughts, what feelings would be more affirming? Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 1, when Jeremiah sees the almond branch budding, <clears throat> And you got to remember that Jeremiah is a priest, and he's from a rejected line. So those of you that know your Bible is a little bit better, this will make more sense to you. If, if you don't know it, don't worry about it, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Jeremiah is a priest, but he's, from a, he's one of the priests in Anathoth, and the priests in Anathoth were a rejected line. They couldn't serve in the temple. So if you remember, when the priesthood was being established in the Torah, and the story of Moses, they took all of the rods of all of the 12 tribes, and Aaron's rod budded with almonds, which was proof that his ministry and his priesthood was valid. You're tracking with me. So here's Jeremiah, and God calls him into a ministry, and he says, I'm disqualified. So the very next thing he sees is he sees a vision of a rod budding with almonds. He, right? And so he says, what have you seen? And he says, I see an almond branch budding. So there's a deeper meaning. God's communicating to him using an archetype that would mean to him that God has chosen him for ministry. And then in our translations, it says, you have seen well, <laughs> you have seen well, behold, I put my words in your mouth, etc. and so on. But, but you have seen well is not the best translation. It, what it means is you have discerned the best or the precious from the vile and you have chosen the precious, you have chosen the best. So in other words, you have a pattern out here of your experience saying that you're rejected, people saying that you're rejected, but you have an inward vision saying that I have chosen you and you've chosen the best. So I want to invite you to choose some ways of thinking that you may not have thought about before that might enhance your ability to be a healing presence. I know for me, these are absolutely essential beliefs that I have tried to, at least, choose on purpose and integrate into my life, and I've seen the results of it in terms of being able to carry a better presence and bring more healing. So you're ready to get started. All that was introduction. <laughs> so let's do the first one. So the first one is becoming committed to being a healer. Now, I know this sounds simple, but truly, this is where I think the, the biggest shift. Let me tell you how this happened. So, so I was brought up in a Bible school. This is no kidding. About, I don't know, five, six, maybe seven years ago. I don't know how long ago it's been. I'm scrolling Facebook and somebody shares a, a article. And it says, uh, President of Bible School arrested by, uh, gosh, it wasn't, um, Homeland Security, arrested by Homeland Security for slavery, for running slavery. And I joked to myself and I said, that sounds like the Bible school I went to. <laughs> Just joking to myself. And I clicked on it and guess what? It was the president of the Bible school that I went to. <laughs> Absolutely true. 
<laughs> he was getting people from overseas and not paying them and making them work and actually spent time in federal prison for running slavery. So I'm just saying I came from a hardcore place. <laughs> I, will, I will share war wounds, church wounds, religious abuse wounds with anybody. And I was, uh, I was, and you know, we were one of these groups, we were always repenting of everything. I mean, everything you did was wrong. Um, you looked at an elbow on a woman and you were in sin, you know, I mean, just, <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it was just bad. Um, and so, so I had a really sort of harsh judgmental attitude and I couldn't live up to my own standards. Anybody ever uh, not able to live up to your own standards? And so I remember, and, and you had to be like, a clean vessel for the Lord, especially if you were a preacher, right? And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting up on a Sunday morning, I'm coming in, and I'm not feeling like a clean vessel. I don't remember what my issues were, none of your business anyway what they were, but I can't remember what they were anyway, because this was like 20 years ago almost. And I'm carrying on, you know, repenting, all that Pentecostal stuff that we used to do, you know, grabbing hold of the horns of the altar and all that stuff, and whatever, only I, I pay, so... We didn't have horns on an altar anyway. Anyway, so, well, you know the wailing. You know, come on, fam, you got to help me out. I don't know if i got any other dyed-in-the-wool Pentecostal holiness people here, but you know about the wailing benches and all that stuff. So, uh, so I'm pacing the floor, and I had my very first um, encounter with an angel manifesting right there in the room. And I remember this angel coming in and and talking to me, and, you know, back then, but that was the five-fold ministry days. Remember that? Everybody was a prophet so-and-so and apostle so-and-so and, and all that stuff. So this is back, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. And, uh, and so I was, you know, recognized in my groups that eventually the kingpin went to prison. But anyway, I was recognized in, in my groups as being a prophet and, and you know what a prophet's job was to go in there and find what was wrong with everybody and, and fix it and rebuke sin and call out sin and all that, all that mess. And so here's this, this angel in this room and talking to me and, and telling me, um, God has not called you, uh, to, you know, prophesy judgment, <laughs> but to be a prophet of mercy. And I'm like, my God, they always taught us that mercy and prophecy didn't go together. Remember that? When you take the spiritual gifts test, you, you had a prophetic temperament, and that was contrary to a mercy temperament. You couldn't score as a prophet. Those two were irreconcilable. I'm like, prophet of mercy, I never heard of such a thing. And then, you know, back then, I was good Brother Hagen, Kenneth Hagen disciple, and, you know, no matter what experience you have mystically, you have to judge it by the word. So here I am, you know, and I said, well, you got to give me... <laughs> That's so stupid. Religion is so stupid. I, I said, you got to give me scripture for that. <laughs> and so, so all of a sudden, all these verses, but the main one being Jesus. Jesus was said that he was uh, 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 no prophet is, how's it go? No prophet is without honor except in his hometown. When he's in Nazareth and he preaches, and it says he could there do no mighty work because of their unbelief. And he says a prophet is not without honor in his hometown. So was Jesus a prophet? Yes. What did he preach? Well, if you look at it, he preached good news to the poor, deliverance to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, he's quoting out of Isaiah, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is anointed, is upon me because he's anointed me. That's what Peter's talking about in Acts 10 that we just looked at. That message, the Spirit of the Lord, out of Isaiah. Well, if you go to Isaiah 61, you look at it, it doesn't end with the acceptable year of the Lord. It says, and I came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God. But Jesus doesn't finish it. He says, I come to preach the acceptable year of the Lord and he leaves the day of the vengeance of our God off. And I saw it right then. Jesus is prophesying grace. He's prophesying mercy. All this stuff, right? And he's not talking about vengeance or judgment. And, and then the angel tells me, all these prophets, then this was before 9-11, <laughs> you know, all these people that are saying it's the hour of God's judgment and God's going to judge America. If God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. How many of you ever heard that one? <laughs> 
and they just said they totally get it. They totally don't get it because we are in the dispensation or we're in the time period of God's grace. We're living in the time of God's favor and God's mercy. And then here's what the angel said. If you will follow the flow of mercy, then healing will follow. And it was out of that experience that I began to see that Jesus did not operate from a judgment, legalistic, moralistic paradigm. Jesus operated from a healing presence paradigm. So therefore, he was committed to being a healing presence. (laughs) All that to say this, that when you commit to being a healing presence, you are committing to adopting a totally different lifestyle than the one you had. You don't get to discriminate what sickness somebody has. Oh, let's do it like this. Jesus said, those that are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinner to repentance, right? Well, the doctor doesn't get to pick which what sickness you have. I'm sorry, we're only treating colds today. We're, we're not looking at tumors. We're not giving referrals. We're only we're only dishing out antibiotics for strep throat today, not for pneumonia yeah. or sepsis or whatever. I'm sorry, we're only doing stitches. We're only treating wounds today. If you have a cold, you have to come back tomorrow or next week. But see, when you discriminate against someone because of their sin, we'll get into this in just a minute. When you discriminate against someone because of their sin, you're doing exactly the same thing. That's exactly what you're doing. You're not committed to being a healing presence. You're not in line with the gospel. You, you, you probably wouldn't even know Jesus if he showed up. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how much you read your Bible. I don't care how many generations you've been in the church. You wouldn't know Jesus any more than they knew Jesus. When he showed up, you'd be more like the Pharisees and like him because you're discriminating against people based on their behaviors and their sinful activities. And, and, and you're choosing which one you're going to heal and which one you're not. Which one can come into your office, which one can't? Which one can actually tell you the symptoms they have and which one, oh, we don't talk about those symptoms here. I'm sorry, you gotta to go to the doctor's office down the, down the, down the road. We don't, we don't treat people like you here. You get it? So being committed to being a healing presence means it's about you, it's not about the other person. This has nothing to do about the other, with the other person at all. Alright. We'll get into this more. But if you can't, if you can only relate to certain people, you've got the problem, not the people you can't relate to. <laughs> I'm gonna say that again because that's worth repeating. If you can only relate on a deep level with certain people and not others, if you can only tolerate this list of sins, but I can't tolerate this list of sins, there ain't nothing wrong with these people. There's something wrong with you. <laughs> and the good news is you can't control them anyway, but you can control you. So this takes a commitment to radical mercy, radical grace, and being a healing presence to everybody. Which is tough. But it's a good intention. Right? I'm not saying, you're not going to live this perfectly, but you can have the intention. You're not going to sit there and justify your judgmental attitude. (laughs) Well, I know I'm being judgmental. I am. Okay. Well, at least you owned it. At least you see it. No, really, there's there's no ignorance like you don't know that you don't know. I don't mind engaging people in conversations. Uh, it, it, it's hard for me to engage really ignorant people. And you know, an, an ignorant person is not someone who doesn't know. An ignorant person is someone who does not know that they do not know. Yeah, right? And they are the most dangerous. All right, so ooh, that's not the first one I wanted. Do we have one, the one on there? Respect uh, the other person's model of the world. Did we get that one on there? Okay, so the first one: <laughs> respect the other person's model. Of the world. Everybody say this with me. Okay, this is for my first thought. I'm going to respect the other person's model of the world. Now, what's a model of the world? See, here's the thing. Your, the way you think is the way you think because of your experiences, because of your internal map and the way you've mapped life based on the information and experiences that you've been presented with. 
Let me ask you a question. I was raised in a Christian nation, the most Christian nation, particularly in the time period that we were growing up, right? On earth, right? Mm -hmm. I happen to be, you know, my family line is from the UK, which before that was, before the US was the most probably Christian nation, white European Christian, right? Raised in a Christian family. So what faith did I adopt? Christianity. Why? Because that's the model of the world that I have. There's no virtue in that. Because you know what that means? That means if I was born in the Middle East, in the middle of Iran, to a radically Muslim family, you know what I would be? Muslim. Why? Did did I choose it? Absolutely not. So how do I know that my hell's real and the Muslim's hell isn't? Seriously. I mean, you want to read some apocalyptic stuff? You want to read some scary God revenge stuff? Read the Koran. Like, how do you know they ain't right? Infidels. Come on. I'm just saying. Our model of the world is our model of the world. Right? I remember dealing with a, a... well, Adam, we don't need to go into that. But I mean, there, there are reasons people do the things that they do. I've met some really sexually broken people. I've met people and talked to people on, on deep levels that the church throws out with the garbage. Because their sins are somehow higher on the list. Because we're more uptight about sexual sin than any other. <laughs> right? And you hear their stories and it's like, if I lived out, I'd be doing that too. If my mom threw me out of the house at 12 years old and I went to live with my older sister who was 19 and on crack and having orgies every night and watching porn, yeah, I might have some sexual issues. (laughs) You know, I was raised in a protected environment. So how can I judge somebody else for what they're doing Because I'm not doing it just because the only difference is we have different models of the world. Now, that doesn't mean you have to like the other person's model of the world. doesn't mean you have to embrace and internalize and make it your model. It just means you respect the fact that their model... Now, watch this. Listen to this. This is going to be a hard pill to swallow. Is just as valid as your model. It's just as valid to them as your model is valid to you. There are Muslims who are raised in Muslim families in the Muslim part of the world who think that all of us are going to burn eternally in hell for not being Muslim. Just like you as a Christian think they're going to burn in hell for not being Christian. Which model is more valid? You're going to say yours is. They're going to say theirs is. How do we know? You get it? So the whole thing begins with, I am going to respect the fact that another person has a model of the world that is just as valid as my model of the world. I remember one of the the first people I, I started learning this from was doing a healing model. And there was a man who had a neurological condition who was a medical doctor who specialized in neurology. He was a neurologist before he developed the condition. And his condition was incurable. And I remember this guy is walking him through a healing model and he says, uh, what's getting in the way of you believing for your own healing? And he said, well, it's incurable. And he said, well, other people believe that it is curable. Other people have been cured of it. And he he scoffs because he he knows. And I remember the guy said, are you willing to accept that the person who believes believes it can be healed, that their model of the world is just as valid as your model? And I remember sitting there saying, how could it be just as valid? This is the guy who knows. I Like, that just blew my mind. How could we say that? But you know what? The guy was eventually able to let go of that and you watched him 
get movement back in his hand, right? There. I mean, he got healed right there on the spot. Because he was willing to let go of his model that said he was right. <laughs> All right. So that's the first thing. Second thing. The meaning of the communication is not just what you intend, but also the response that you get. The meaning of your communication is not what you intend, just what you intend, but also the response that you get. What does that mean? That means communication is a tricky, fluid process. Have you ever gotten to an argument and argued about what you said? I didn't say that. I said this. Right? Or argue about the intention. Or how many of you have ever intended to say something, but you were misunderstood? Okay, let me say this. How many of you intended something, thought you said something, you were misunderstood? And let's be really honest, okay? And when you were misunderstood, you felt victimized by the person who misunderstood you. They said, well, I had good intentions. Maybe you didn't feel victimized, but you got real high. Well, I had good intentions. They just misunderstood. See, this is inviting you to take responsibility for the whole process and understand that it's fluid. That what you, that the meaning of your communication is not just what you meant to say, but it's also the response that you get based on the meaning that the person heard from what you said. Now, I was talking to a person the other day, and they're like being missed, they're being stepped on at work. I mean, they're being taken advantage of. And just mad as heck that the other person is taking advantage of them. And I'm like, did you ever tell the person that you didn't want to do that? No. Did you ever tell the person that you were feeling? It's like, no, but they should know. Anybody ever thought like that? They should mind read me. They should know. Uh, right? That is poor communication because I have the best intentions. Doesn't matter a hill of beans if you want to be a healing presence. If you want to be a healing presence, you understand other people have a different model of the world than you, and so therefore complica- or communication can be complicated, and you are willing, you and I are willing, to understand the meaning of the communication is not just what I meant to say, but the response that I get. In fact, you could go so far as to say the meaning of the communication is the response that you get. Because it doesn't matter one hill of beans what you meant to say. If you were trying to get a meaning across to somebody else and they didn't get the meaning, then what you said is the meaning, the the communication that happened is the meaning that they got, not what you said. Now that doesn't mean (laughs) that you have to take responsibility for everybody who misunderstands what you say. It just means you're aware of the process. And if they misunderstand, you're like, oh, they, mis- they misunderstood. You, you can try to explain if you want to, if it's worth it to you, if the juice is worth the squeeze. <laughs> but if it's not, leave them alone. Who cares? Make sense? All right. <clears throat> Every behavior, now this is tough if you have a, like, Calvinist background. Every behavior has a positive intention. Everybody say that with me. Every behavior has a positive intention. It's kind of a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? Even, think about this. Even the bomber, since we're talking about Muslims, the radical Muslim who straps a bomb to their chest, and they are radical Muslims. Not every Listen, there are radical Christians. Not every Christian is out picketing the homosexual funerals saying God hates fags. Right? Am I right? That's not every Christian. Not every Christian is yelling. And, you, know, you get it, right? So there are extreme factions. Not every Christian is a member of the KKK, but the KKK calls themselves Christians. So why can't we accept that there are also radical Muslims? Not every Muslim is strapping bombs to their chests and blowing up buildings and shopping malls and whatever else, right? But even the guy who does believes with all his heart that his family's going to be taken care of because the terrorist organizations have promised financial assistance to the families that he can no longer provide for because of the economic oppression. So it is an option that has a good intention behind it for his family. It's a love for his family that causes him oftentimes to do that, number one. And number two, maybe he believes he's got 70 virgins waiting for him when he gets to heaven and that might be a twisted model of the world and that might be sexist and all that other stuff but it's still what he believes and his good intention is he's going on to a good time 
Right? So every behavior, no matter how twisted it is, has a positive intention. So we have to be able to separate the intention from the strategy to fulfill the intention that's there. Eve didn't eat at the tree because she wanted to put us all in this mess. If you want Bible for it. Eve ate at the tree, why? Because she saw that it was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eye, and what? Desirable to make one wise. And she took it and gave to her husband. So the behavior created a mess, but the intention was good. (laughs) How about this one? There is a way that seems right to the person, but the end thereof is destruction or death, right? The intention is good, but the way, eh, not so much. Well, I have the best intentions. Everybody has the best intentions. Everybody does. Now, that ought to help you, because if you got some behavior, some mess you don't like, at least you can know you got some, that part of you that keeps doing that mess for you has some positive intention for you. Okay. People are doing the best they... But think about... Okay, now, seriously, think about how much this would change your vision of the world if you started thinking like this. People aren't evil and out to get you and out to hurt you and just wrong and... eh. They have good intentions. Everybody does. Now, watch this. People are doing the best they can with the resources they have available. Now, everybody wants to be treated like that. We all want to be treated. We all want to be given the benefit of the doubt. I'm doing the best I can. But those other people, they're just rotten. They're just rotten apples in the basket. That's not being a healing presence. It's not. It's needing healing. Because <laughs> you've got to ask yourself, why are you so triggered by what that other person is doing? Really, what, what, how does that a problem for you? In your daily life. Like when when uh, the U.S. like affirmed, I don't know, gay marriage. I mean, you'd have, some of the Christians, you'd have thought Jesus Christ fell off the throne. Honest to God. And I'm like, this makes no sense. Just because the government puts on a piece of paper, we now recognize gay marriage, does not mean more people are going to have a sexual orientation towards gayness or whatever. Like it has absolutely nothing, like whatever the government does has absolutely nothing to do with the internal sexual orientation of a person. All right. So why can't you just live and let live is what I'm saying. They ain't listening to you anyway. (laughs) The louder you get, the louder they get. And Jesus said, I will not quarrel or raise my voice. You got it? So there may be people who, who choose differently than you and all that stuff. What is it? How is it a problem for you? So why can't we just believe that people are doing the best they can with the resources that they have available to them and everyone is making the best choice they can at the time? Yeah, but that person chose, you know, this other thing. Well, this other thing may not have been good. It's not good to go in and do a mass shooting. That's not a good thing. But that does not mean the person who did it was not making the best choice available to that person at that time. You have no idea the mental state, the model of the world, the intentions of the person who did that. Am I saying we should just accept that? Absolutely not. But I'm saying... People are doing the best they can with what they have available to them at the time. And that belief will cause compassion to rise up in you. Because what must be going on inside a person's mind and emotionally to drive them to do that and to think that's the best they can do? That should cause compassion to well up in your heart. Even to the worst atrocities the person with the most flexibility will have the most influence what am I talking about 
I'm talking about being flexible. If you're rigid in your beliefs, you're rigid in your stance. It's, listen, I'm passionate about what I believe. I'm strong. I have no problem being strong and passionate about what I believe, but I also don't have a problem with people who think differently than me. I may have problems. I may passionately put out ideas. You know what I'm saying? I may even try to persuade people to my way of thinking, but here's the thing. If I can only relate to these people because of the way I think and feel, or I can only present myself in one way, then I limit my ability to have power and influence. Absolutely. It's the craziest thing in the world. I thought when I started teaching and preaching some of this stuff, I knew the influence I was going to lose. I knew what I was going to lose. (laughs) What I did not realize was the influence nationally and globally that I was going to have. And even still locally. You wouldn't believe how many people watch online, whatever. People even in significant Christian leadership positions throughout the city who secretly think like this, but they can't sacrifice their whatever to come out of the closet, but are like, thank you. Like people seriously that would... I see them at funerals and they come alongside me and they'd whisper in my ear, I've been watching your videos. I really like it. Keep it up. Because, <laughs> you know, otherwise their Christian friends might hear. But see, here's the thing. When you're in this rigid thing that says only what we believe is what works, we think that's giving us influence. It's actually greatly limiting our influence because it's limiting our flexibility. Paul was able to say this, to the Jew, I am like a Jew, to the Gentile, I am like a Gentile. I'm all things, this is in your Bible, I am all things to all people that I might win some. What's he saying? I'm flexible, therefore I have influence and power. He understood the key. Whoever has the most flexibility has the most influence. Make sense? So if you can only communicate one way, if you can only relate one way, if you can only accept, if, you, if you're only treating colds today and not instead of injuries, you're not flexible. And that's fine. You're doing the best you can <laughs> with the resources that you have and you're making the best decision that's available to you to make at the time. And now you're invited to realize that you could be seriously limiting your own influence and presence and power. All right. Is there anything else after that? It's not turning for me. Oh, yeah, this is an important one. There is no failure, only feedback. This will change your life. You ever felt like a failure? Failure does not exist. It absolutely does not exist. Classic example, Thomas Edison. Attempted 5,000 times the light bulb before he accomplished making one. 5,000 times. And somebody asked Thomas Edison, they said, how were you able to fail... 5,000 times, but have enough belief to keep going. And he said very simply, I never failed. Every time it didn't work, I learned what not to do the next time. He never saw it as failure. He saw everything as a learning opportunity. And you cannot learn without feedback. So let's be real simple. Let's talk about the laying on of hands with healing. How many of you have ever done that? Have you ever paid attention to your results? See, I was taught in Faith Moon, don't pay attention to results, and it doesn't matter results, you just believe the word. And then we didn't get any results. (laughs) I mean, what a religious con. What I'm preaching is the truth of the word of God. Come down here and get healed. Jesus is going to heal everybody. By his stripes you're healed. And then they do a healing line, not a certain, not a single person gets healed. And then they tell you, don't pay attention to your circumstances. Don't pay attention. I mean, what a con. What a religious con. (laughs) But we were doing the best we could with the resources that we had, making the best decisions available to us at the time. Right? 
What, but you could take a different approach. Did it work? No. What might I try differently next time I lay hands on somebody? Or here's an even better one. It worked. Have you ever had times when you, you were laying hands on people and there was more of a flow of power? There was more of a release? There was more that happened? I have. Well, you gotta pay attention. What were you doing? What specifically was going through your mind? What were you doing with your imagination? How were you breathing? Seriously, I mean simple stuff like that. Were you, were you revved up or were you relaxed? And you keep track of that stuff and then you get feedback from it and you try it again the next time. And you could do that with everything in your life. There is no failure, there's only feedback. I could stand up and sing a horrible song, horrible tune, because, you know, I don't have the best voice. Try lead worship, whatever. And I would get feedback from that. <laughs> that does not mean I failed. I'm free to get up the next week and try the same thing, and I might get the same feedback. And eventually I might look at that feedback and say, maybe I should take voice lessons. Or then maybe I decide, maybe the voice lessons aren't worth it, but you, you, you get it. That, that one thing, if you, if you don't leave with anything else, that one thing will change your life. There is no failure, there's only feedback. When you understand that, then think about the flexibility this is giving you. I'm respecting someone else's model of the world. I'm taking responsibility for communication, not just on my side, but I'm watching the responses that I get to see if the message that I intended to send is the one that was received. I mean, if you're sending somebody an encouraging message and they go like this, they didn't get it. I don't care how much you intended to encourage them, they didn't get it. And sometimes, let's be honest, our encouragement is self-righteous encouragement. We know better than you, we think better than you, you're too weak to do it on your own, so we're encouraging you, but it's carrying the energy of, I'm better than you. Right? So if they go like this, maybe they didn't get that you were trying to encourage them, and you can step back from that and... People are doing the best they can. <laughs> Their positive intention behind every behavior. So then instead of getting all upset when somebody does something, you can stop and say, I wonder what their positive intention was. And then maybe you can relate to them based on their intention, not based on their behavior. And maybe you can influence them that way. And maybe you can bring more peace and more healing that way. People are doing the best they can at the time with all the resources that they have. How about this one? People work perfectly well. <laughs> Give you an example. I, in the first service, and this is probably where I'll... Yeah. I'm going I'm to finish here. What, uh, I'll give you this example. People work perfectly well. So one of the things I've had the opportunity to overcome in my life is a mild anxiety disorder, but an anxiety disorder nonetheless. Like, I, again, I come from a long line of champion warriors. Grandma, mom. It's even carried down to some of my nieces. Right? It's just... And, and, and I, I was doing okay till I had a kid. And then, like... And it didn't help that I went to... Um, uh, you, you know, at Parkview, they show you a movie. At least they did back then. I thought, oh, we're going to see a movie about a baby. And we go in there, they show you a freaking horror movie. No, really. Like, 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 Stephen King movies never scared me so much. They show you all the different ways you can kill your baby if you do it wrong. And we're bringing him home on oxygen tubes, and I'm sitting there thinking, holy crap. Like, like, I'm scared to death going home. Like, I'm traumatized. All the ways I can kill my kid. Forget about him in the car seat on a hot day. I could be flighty. I mean, I really can, you know. So I'm sitting there thinking, dang it. <laughs> SIDS, you know, you got to make sure. And they change their mind every five years, which way to lay your kid, you know, is the best way to prevent SIDS. They had me so scared for SIDS, poor guy. The first night he was at home, I got up eight times to poke him and make sure he was still breathing. <laughs> Julie's like, my God, would you let him sleep? 
anxiety disorder. Worry, and I had, you know, Dr. Steve on speed dial. I remember one time, like Elijah, it was impossible to put to sleep. Impossible. It was impossible to put that kid to sleep. You'd have to rock him like this, and then you'd finally get him to sleep, and you'd put him down, and he'd wake up and start screaming. And it was exhausting. So he was just starting to eat a jar of baby food, right? This is why it's called a disorder. Everybody has anxiety. <laughs> this is why it's classified as a mental illness. <laughs> He's doing his thing. And if you don't think anything about Elijah, if you ever watch him, he never quits moving. Ever. He's always moving. Even in his sleep, he's turning his legs. He's moving. He's running. He's doing something all the time. Right? So I go put the jar of Gerber's in the microwave, and for eight seconds. How long is eight seconds? Not very long. And he's, you know, doing his thing. I turn the corner, and he is in his little baby thing with the tray, you know, his little walker baby thing. You know, he's sitting in there, and it's all supported, and he's got the tray. And he's, he's over face down like this. Dunk. And I'm poking him. Nothing. So what do I do? I got the doctor on speed dial. Should, 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 should I take him into the, the, the doctor's office? Should, should I take him into the, the, the emergency room? And, and, and Dr. Steve, he was always so gracious. You know how he is. He's so gracious. Well, Aaron, maybe he's just sleeping. <laughs> Yeah, but I can't rouse him. Does he open his eyes? Yes, but then they close right away again. (laughs) He's probably just sleeping. (laughs) Are you sure? (laughs) People work perfectly well. Because here's the thing about anxiety. If you you believe in faith, you believe in the law of attraction, whatever, you you believe that you have to be able to represent to yourself, in your mind, in your imagination, a reality that has not occurred yet. Right? If you're going to say, I am healed in the present moment by faith, you have to be able to present to yourself a future that does not exist. You have to be able to create it. I had the power to create such a horrible future. (laughs) That I could literally change the rate and speed of my heartbeat. Try it. Try it right now. Try it. Just, just try to make your heartbeat really fast. Can you do it? I mean, that's not an easy feat. Like that is, that is the subconscious thing. You go to sleep, your heart beats. I mean, you have, you have no control over it, really. But I had such a powerful ability to imagine a reality that was not yet present, a future that was not yet present, that I could actually change the rate and speed of my heart. On command. Just think about whatever horrible future I was thinking about. I still deal with it sometimes. We went this last time, okay, well, this last time we went, Elijah, boy, I tell you. Now, I am afraid of heights. Anybody in here afraid of heights? Now, I've done, I've done everything I possibly, yeah, I know you're not afraid of heights. Huh? I thought about going skydiving to overcome my fear of heights until I told you, you told me about all the stuff that could go wrong up there, and then I'm like, I'm no part of that, because I don't get a mulligan. <laughs> Like, I have this irrational fear of heights. And I've done everything I can to overcome it. Because seriously, I was seriously thinking about it. I mean, I've done the Royal Gorge thing, you know, where you're swinging out, bungee cord, whatever. And, and you know, I took a job washing windows, so I had the opportunity to climb a ladder five stories in the air to wash a window and climb back down. The whole time I'm terrified, thinking, God has not given me a spirit of fear. <laughs> that was back in the faith days, you know. God has not given me a spirit of fear, but power of love and a sound mind. <laughs> Go to the Royal Gorge, you know, and look in between the, in between the things or lean over, you know. 
like, oh my God. Then, or go to Bishop's Castle. Holy moly. Take your kids. It ain't afraid of heights. So we go to this ski resort a couple weeks ago, vacation in Idaho, right? <laughs> and there's an alpine slide. And to get to the alpine slide, you have to take the ski lift. Now, who, who came up with ski lifts? <laughs> because you are on a park bench at least 10 stories in the air. You're just on a park bench. That's all you are. You're just sitting on a park bench. Like, there's no seatbelt. There's no strap to hold you in. There ain't even a rope for you to grab onto if you slip. You're just chilling on a park bench, but you're like way up there. And I'm looking down thinking in the winter, if I fell, there'd at least be snow. And they had this little bar that comes down. So I thought, well, that's okay, you know. So I get on, Julie and the boys and me, we get on. I'm on this park bench and the boys, are, and here's Elijah just wiggling. I'm like, would he please stop wiggling? <laughs> like, don't you know you can fall off this park bench? <laughs> what am I doing? Presenting? <laughs> what a skill. This has nothing to do with that. I'll get back to that in a minute, and then we'll be done. <laughs> Tom, like, just, you know, think about something else. Don't look down. Close your eyes. Don't close your eyes, because then you can't watch these two kids. And I'm just like, I'm trying to be cool, though, right? You know, because it's so not masculine. I mean, to be this scared little girl up on the... <laughs> so I just put my arm back real cool and just kind of... Hooking around that back bar of the park bench that I'm on, you know, just, just in case it jerks or something. <laughs> you know. So I'm, I'm doing fine. Until the end of the day. Now we had one pass. We bought the boys day passes, but we only went one time. Thank God I only get on that thing one time. But here's what I didn't foresee. They could go as many times as they wanted without us. So the end of the day, I notice Elijah, he just goes and hops on this park bench by himself. And he doesn't pull down the bar. He doesn't even know to pull down the bar. And these two guys that are running the thing, they don't pull down the bar. I'm like, they just let my little kid get on a park bench. At least ten stories in the air. And they didn't even, he doesn't have a seatbelt. Now he doesn't even have the bar across his lap. And they don't know that he goes like this and looks and Josiah might see a lizard and jump out. <laughs> For the love of God. And there he goes. And I'm like, and that thing, I swear to God, it took a half hour to get to the top of that mountain. Like, like that, that's the other thing. Like, not, that's, not only... Are you on a park bench? But it's like moving at two miles an hour. <laughs> like, could we get this over with, please, for the love of God? So there he goes by himself. We don't have a ticket to get back on. And I'm just like, and I'm watching him. And I'm watching his little feet and hands going, you know, and I'm like, oh, Jesus. So what am I envisioning, you know? So I'm, I tend to be assertive. So Julie, Julie, <laughs> Julie goes over and she asks the guys, she's like, uh, has anybody ever fallen off of one of these and died? And the guys are like, oh no. Um, no, that, that doesn't usually happen. <laughs> that doesn't usually happen. She says, oh, she says, well, uh, um, you know, what about little kids? Oh, no, we never have problems with little kids. The ones that fall off are usually adults that get crazy up there. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> like, what are they doing? <laughs> oh, honey, we got a couple of moments to ourselves. 
<laughs> like, how do you get crazy on a park bench? <laughs> Finally, it dawns on her. Of course, they think she's asking about the slide, not the chairlift. <laughs> oh, he'll be fine coming down that slide. No, 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 you don't understand. My husband is freaking out that he's on the chairlift. <laughs> and they start laughing. They're like, what? Oh, it's, then all of a sudden they became a representative from one of the airlines. Oh, it's the safest way to go. Elevators are safer. This is safer than an elevator is. Oh, no, no. We've never had anybody fall off and die. I'm going to go talk to the boss. So I saw him train some people. So there he is. So I go talk to the manager. I said, uh, so is it, you know, uh, common practice to let a eight-year-old get on the uh, ski lift by himself? Oh, yeah, during the ski season, sometimes we have kids that are six or seven years old that have taken lessons. If they've taken lessons, they can get on the ski lift. They don't have to have a parent. I see. Um, well, if you wouldn't mind helping an anxious parent out, my wife is really, <laughs> my wife is really, really anxious about this. And, uh, <laughs> wait, uh, has anybody ever died? <laughs> Anybody ever fallen? And he says, well, we probably have 20,000 skiers a weekend come through this resort during the winter. And then all this in the summer. And I'd say in the last five years, there have probably been two people that have fallen off. And they're both fine. I'm like, yeah, they're both fine because they fell in powder. <laughs> and get stuck through with a tree <laughs> like a stake in the heart. What's my point? I'm sorry. This is a my point is, human beings work perfectly well. I have this wonderful ability to take invisible things and potential futures and represent them to myself so well that I can change my physiology and I can experience it before I have to experience it just like I am experiencing it, which is exactly what you have to be able to do with your hopes in order to, by faith, bring them into manifestation. So if I can understand, I'm working perfectly well just in the wrong context, just in the wrong way. Then I can take what I'm doing that is causing me a problem and see it as a skill rather than as a problem. Classic example of this comes from a guy named Richard Bandler. Now, Richard Bandler was not a Christian. Everybody say with me, Richard Bandler was not a Christian. So don't get offended by the story, but it's funny and it'll, it'll leave you with an impact. He met with a schizophrenic one time. And uh, he was talking to schizophrenic, and here's how the interview goes. The schizophrenic says, it's terrible. This is the most horrible experience of my life. It terrifies me. Well, tell me exactly what happens. How does it terrify you? Every time I watch television, Mary from Little House on the Prairie, this was back in the 70s, Mary from Little House on the Prairie comes out of the television and chases me around the house. And Richard Bandler looked at him and said, this is no problem at all. This is a great skill. If you could teach this skill to other people, I guarantee you, you could make millions, if not billions of dollars. Your problem is not that people are jumping out of the TV screen and chasing you. Your problem is you have bad taste in television. So what you need to do is rent you a pornographic movie. (laughs) So that the women on the screen come out and start chasing you around the house. And then you could teach other people how to do that. We could make a lot of money. <laughs> so you're looking at me so horrified. <laughs> but you will always remember this illustration from Church on Sunday. <laughs> How in the world did we get here? <clears throat> What's that last one? Be done. I'm sorry if I kept it too long. What was that last one? Oh, you already took it down. That's all right. That's all right. Has this helped you a little bit? I hope it's a little bit lighter. 
No, no, no. There was one more after that, I think. Oh, there's not resistant people, only inflexible communicators. In other words, if you're trying to be encouraging and you're getting this response, and you just keep saying the same thing over and over again, (laughs) you're creating the resistance. So sometimes when you are receiving resistance, all that is is feedback to let you know you need to be more flexible in your system in order to change your pattern, and then you might have more influence and more success. Make sense? All right, let's pray. So, Lord, thank you for your people. I pray somehow something I said is impactful and (laughs) life-changing. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great afternoon.